The COVID-19 pandemic has forced many people to move their lives online. Work meetings, classes, book clubs, and even birthday parties and church services are all happening virtually. It's really kind of miraculous that we can continue to connect with our friends, family, and colleagues with live video technology. However, there are some people that are using this technology not to connect, but to divide. On April 10th, 2020, members of a Filipino-American student organization at San Diego State University were meeting on Zoom when someone they didn't know showed up and began shouting racial slurs. Fox 43 News interviewed two of the leaders of the student group, Francis Cadiz and Lana Bautista, about the experience. As soon as we started hearing uh, very discriminatory terms used against us, that's when we started feeling threatened. You could see on their faces the distraught anger and disappointment. Some were even crying after that because it really was such a big shock to all of us. I felt so violated to the point where I was physically shaking. The act of disrupting video calls like these is called a Zoom bomb, named after the ubiquitous teleconferencing platform Zoom. Often, Zoom bombers are just bored teenage pranksters, causing visual and audio disruptions for laughs, a sort of digital whoopee cushion. But as cases like the SDSU student group show, they can also be much darker. People of color, religious minorities, and addiction recovery support groups have all been targeted by malicious Zoom bombers. Attackers have displayed pornography at children's events, written racial slurs on screen during a black PhD candidate's dissertation defense, and shown Nazi symbols at a Jewish funeral. Through these attacks, Zoom bombers are able to massively disrupt community spaces. But do these attacks, as the word bombing suggests, actually constitute violence? This isn't just a semantic question. Violence, as it is defined by government officials, lawmakers, and courts, is limited and regulated by the police and other state powers. Legal definitions of violence currently center on the use of physical force. If we define violence this narrowly, virtual attacks like Zoom bombings couldn't be defined or punished as violence. But if we define violence too broadly, then government forces could legally shut down, say, the expression of free speech or the organization of protests because they might now be defined as violent. If we don't think carefully about what ought to count as violence, then anything that disrupts the status quo could be defined as violence by those seeking to maintain that status quo. This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. This episode examines the complicated answer to a deceptively simple question. What is violence? In Section 16 of the U.S. Legal Code, a crime of violence is defined this way. An offense that has as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person or property of another. Johan Galtung, a Norwegian scholar who founded the field of peace studies, theorized that violence was more expansive than this. He argued that violence exists in three distinct but related categories, direct, structural, and cultural. Direct violence is the use of physical force. This kind of violence involves an event, like murder or a fight. Structural violence is a little more complex. This form of violence refers to the systems that regularly deprive some people of their basic needs. Where direct violence is an event, structural violence is a process, often enacted by institutions. 
For example, for many decades, city governments, banks, and real estate agents conspired together to enact redlining practices that prevented Black Americans from living in certain neighborhoods with greater access to essential services like healthcare and education. The third kind of violence that Galtung describes is cultural violence. Cultural violence is the collection of stories, ideas, norms, and assumptions embedded in a society, which makes structural and direct violence feel inevitable or natural. For example, the belief that Africans were primitive was a form of cultural violence that gave sanction to the African slave trade, making it feel morally acceptable to the people in the societies that practiced it. Direct and structural violence were enabled by a socially constructed cultural violence that made slavery and oppression feel natural, right, and even ethical. Galtung points to cultural violence in many dimensions of society, in the fabric of religion, the secular state, language forms, and the practice of science. This robust definition of violence helps us better understand the complex nature of violence. It does, however, run the risk of leaving us overwhelmed and lost as to how to move in a violent world without ourselves perpetuating that violence. After all, if it's impossible to act nonviolently, and most actions are considered violent, the definition no longer has any use. We can just assume we're all acting violently and have no alternative, which keeps us from actually looking for nonviolent solutions to problems. Many of the great 20th century movements for equality owed much of their success to their nonviolent strategies. We think of figures like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. But given expansive definitions of violence, even their apparently nonviolent movements could potentially have been classified as violent and thereby violently suppressed. Our dilemma is this. A society needs to be able to balance order and change. If change is too hard, those already benefiting from a given system can use their advantages to maintain and perpetuate unjust hierarchies. If change is too easy, the resulting disorder can make life feel perilous and chaotic. We must balance the twin needs of order and change. To do so requires a case-by-case -case analysis of the intent of the action, the impact, and the relative power of the actors. This approach is more nuanced and precise and requires us to keep in mind our own biases about what we might consider violence because of our own identities and experiences. It also enables us to make the vital distinction between violence, which we generally want to prevent, and disruption, which we sometimes want to embrace. An action can be highly disruptive to the status quo without being violent. This is Erica Chenoweth, a professor of human rights and international affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and author of the book, Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. And so it can also scare people and elicit fear without being violent. For example, nonviolent direct action is usually um, intended to be disruptive, um, trying to, for example, chain oneself uh, to a bank doorway uh, to prevent people from entering is very disruptive, but it doesn't threaten anybody. Um, and it doesn't threaten to hurt anybody physically. Um, it just threatens to disrupt and change the status quo. And so that can be threatening. It can be politically threatening, but it doesn't, it doesn't threaten harm to a person physically. Chenoweth believes protests must be disruptive in order to be effective in changing the status quo. Protest is intended to demonstrate resistance to business-as-usual operations. A successful protest 
is disruptive by nature. Sometimes we forget that successful protests like the civil rights movement were not calm, quiet affairs that stayed out of everyone's way. Rather, effective protesters blocked traffic, staged sit-ins, and led loud public marches to alert fellow citizens and public leaders to the urgent challenges of their community. Here's civil rights movement leader John Lewis describing the thinking behind lunch counter sit-ins in a PBS documentary about his life called Get in the Way. We had to make the point that sometimes you have to put yourself in harm's way. And in the process, you may stir up some violence, but you would not engage in the violence. We were attacked. People were beaten. Lighted cigarettes put out down people's back. Pulled ketchup and hot sauce on people. Police officials came in and arrested all of us. Holding my head high, I felt so free. I felt liberated. I felt like I crossed over. The civil rights movement protesters made it impossible for white Americans to ignore them or ignore the fact that there was a problem that needed to be addressed. So a successful protest is disruptive. But even when the disruption can feel very intense, it is very important that we don't define all protests as essentially violent. On May 25th, 2020, a Minneapolis police officer violently murdered a black man named George Floyd. It may have, like so many others, been merely a statistic if Americans had been unable to see and hear this tape of his horrific death as it happened. What do you want? I can't breathe. Please, the knee of my dick. I can't breathe shit. Uh-huh. Bro, get up, get in the car, man. I will. Get up, get in the car. I can't move. In response, Black Lives Matter demonstrations erupted across the United States and around the world. Despite the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement sees itself and strives to be nonviolent, many police officers and conservative media outlets frame all protesters and the movement as a whole as violent. Here's Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson in a monologue in June 2020. Black Lives Matter believes in force. They flood the streets with angry young people who break things and they hurt anyone who gets in the way. When they want something, they take it. Make them mad and they will set your business on fire. Annoy them and they will occupy your downtown and declare a brand new country. This is the most destructive kind of politics. Calling the entire Black Lives Matter movement fundamentally violent is an effort to reduce popular support for the political and economic reforms BLM activists are seeking. But there's an even more worrisome way opponents of Black Lives Matter are seeking to stop the movement. In the courtroom. In 2016, two Baton Rouge police officers responded to an anonymous call reporting that a black man in that area was waving a handgun while carrying CDs. The man in question, Alton Sterling, was carrying CDs and did have a gun, but he wasn't waving it. When the officers showed up, they failed to de-escalate the situation and shot Sterling six times at close range, killing him. By sunrise, protesters had organized a Black Lives Matter march. One of the lead protesters was DeRay Mickison. During one protest McCassin helped organize, a police officer was injured by a concrete block thrown in the middle of an otherwise nonviolent gathering. The police officer anonymously sued McCassin for inciting violence. McCassin did not himself throw the block or direct anyone to do it. But the police officer alleged that McCassin, as a leader in the Black Lives Matter movement, was responsible for violence by creating the conditions in which violence could happen. The DeRay-McCassin case would represent a serious expansion of what constitutes violence. This case is currently on its way to the U.S. Supreme Court and could have significant implications for the future of civil resistance. 
Here's Ben Weisner, director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, discussing the case in a video from the ACLU. The question in this case is whether DeRay McCasson can be held personally liable for the alleged violent actions of someone else. This is an incredibly important First Amendment case. When I go to a protest that has hundreds or thousands of people, I can't possibly know what someone else in that protest might decide to do. I can't even know if that person shares my beliefs. Perhaps he was sent undercover by a government agent or by a movement that opposes what we're doing. The Fifth Circuit has essentially said that I can be held liable for what someone else does if it was foreseeable that there might be a police-citizen interaction that could lead to violence. By that standard, uh, I really think that every movement for social change in this country is jeopardized. In the protests of 2020, looters and anarchist insurrectionists have used the cover of peaceful Black Lives Matter demonstrations to pursue their own destructive and violent objectives. Depending on the outcome of the current Supreme Court case, Black Lives Matter movement leaders could be liable for these kinds of conflicts. In other words, a protest against violence could also inherently be considered violence and therefore prevented or suppressed. These questions about violence and nonviolence become all the more difficult when we bring the discussion into the virtual world. Since 2015, Ukraine has experienced many waves of cyber attacks from Russia. Here's CBS Evening News reporting on one of these incidents in 2016. Last weekend, parts of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, went dark. Holly Williams reports that Russia appears to have figured out how to crash a power grid with a click. Nearly a quarter of a million people lost power in this small Ukrainian city when it was targeted by a suspected Russian attack last December. Vassal Pemchuk is the electric control centre manager and told us when hackers took over their computers, all his workers could do was film it with their cell phones. Besides power grids, these attacks have also shut down airlines, ATMs, telecommunication systems, and compromise the security of personal, business, and government data. These attacks are now so common in Ukraine that many simply aren't even reported on. These attacks have significant impact, both in the moment that they strike and in their long-term effects on Ukraine's financial stability and social cohesion. But are these attacks acts of violence? In deciding whether a cyber attack constitutes violence, we need to remember that not all internet attacks come from nefarious state-sponsored bad actors. In 1994, a year before the internet was fully set up to carry commercial traffic, the United Kingdom's then-ruling conservative government introduced the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994. The act was intended to reduce some early 1990s behaviors that the Conservative Party deemed antisocial, particularly rave parties. For example, the act specifically outlawed music with repetitive beats, music like this Back to the Planet song. More broadly, the act was intended to curb civil liberties and also to suppress activities or cultural expression coded as lower class. Opposition to the new law was fierce. A group opposed to the act organized the first ever email bomb. In an orchestrated effort, these cyber protesters sent thousands of emails to the government so that they were ultimately able to crash government servers. Like the Ukraine attack, this action was intended to disrupt normal day-to-day -day functioning of the targeted group but it was also intended to get the government to roll back these new laws limiting free expression. 
What is the difference between the Ukraine attacks and the email bomb protest? Considering a different form of virtual violence might lead us to an answer. Zoom bombing is the case when a stranger shows up uh, in your Zoom meeting and does something outrageous. That's Dr. Joan Donovan, research director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy. Taking over the screen and showing nude pictures or pornography or using the whiteboard function to write racial slurs or to, you know, take over the host position and mute all the microphones and then say very racist or outrageous, uh, sexist, homophobic things, transphobic things. Uh, And usually people use obscenities in that case because it's uh, the most shocking thing you can do on Zoom. It's nudity and obscenities. A Zoom bomb in class is annoying. But a Zoom bomber spewing hate speech during a black church service is something more serious. These attacks could have long-term impacts on the well-being of minority communities, especially when so much of community life has shifted online. Having those lines of communication disrupted can have serious psychological effects. The New York Attorney General has started asking questions about Zoom and privacy, arguing that Zoom is being weaponized. To date, several state attorneys general and U.S. congressional lawmakers have called for investigations into Zoom protections. The FBI has warned that Zoom hijackers, according to the Bureau's terminology, will be treated as online hackers. Online hackers often face time in prison for their online actions. I'm Oren Siegel. I'm the vice president of the ADL Center on Extremism. The ADL, or Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism, investigates incidents of extremism across the United States and abroad. The technology that enables us to maintain community, uh, reach out to friends, family, uh, uh, cohorts of other kinds, um, is sort of the last grasp that we have on sanity in a very difficult time. And so what happens when this Zoom palming occurs is it, first of all, sort of get, takes people by surprise. They're not sort of expecting it. But then it shatters this notion of like the one thing that we need to make sure that we are maintaining our humanity during a very difficult time um, is, is disrupted. And in many ways, that's very similar to some of the experiences people have when they are victims of hate crimes, right? It's sort of out of nowhere, feeling like they're being targeted because of who they are. For those who rely on social practices like communal religious worship or addiction support groups, For members of marginalized groups who draw strength from time in their community, substituting online events for in-person gatherings has already strained their critical social connections. When online platforms are disrupted by Zoom bombers, participants might not feel safe attending those virtual gatherings again and may feel cut off from their social network altogether. Loneliness and isolation can damage both our physical and mental health. Research suggests that loneliness can be more harmful for the body than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The stress of loneliness can cause inflammation, depression, and suppressed immune response. If Zoom bombing isolates us even further, it's a threat we need to take seriously. But we are still left with the question of what exactly Zoom bombing is. Is it merely a new form of online harassment and trolling? Or does it, on occasion, rise to the level of assault, hate crime, or terrorism? Is a Zoom bomb like a physical bomb on the ground, something violent. Earlier, we suggested that when deciding whether something is violent, we should consider the intent of the action, the impact, and the relative power of the actors. This last point, the relative power of the actors, 
is especially important because we want two things from our definition of violence. First, we want the government to be able to respond to actions that threaten civilian well-being. But second, we also want activists to be able to legally protest. In both cases, we need to maintain the distinction between disruption and violence. Taking into account the relative power of the actors can help us know whether an action might be considered disruption or violence. The more powerful the actor, the more willing we should be to consider an action violent, especially when that actor is the state. Let's reconsider a few of the cases we've explored from this perspective. The far more militarily powerful Russia shutting down the power grid of Ukraine in the middle of winter seems pretty clearly a case of violent cyberterrorism. In contrast, the ragtag group of 1994 crime bill protesters temporarily shutting down British government email servers seems more like a case of disruption. And Zoom bombing? The COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to be dramatically more reliant on the internet for work and community. As a result, it has also finally led us to realize that it no longer makes sense to separate the digital world from the real world. The internet is the world, which means that we may want to consider some instances of virtual actions, like Zoom bombs, actions that can cause severe emotional harm and prevent individuals and communities from living and flourishing online as violence. A different kind of violence than a physical assault, yes, but violence nonetheless. These acts have such significant potential consequences that it may be necessary for governments to police and prosecute attackers in order to keep citizens safe. As our lives become more and more entwined in virtual infrastructure and practices, let's remember that the fight for justice doesn't take place only on the streets. The internet is increasingly our shared home, our public square. We should strive to ensure that it is a place where all people, from all backgrounds, can live and gather in safety and peace. This episode was produced by Leah Rechtman. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a Hub and Spoke show called Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. In Is a Polyglot's Brain Different? Hosts Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay dive into their research that looks at how polyglots are able to seemingly attain fluency in multiple languages. This is the first modern-day study of the polyglot brain to find out what, if anything, sets them apart. So check it out at subtitlepod.com or anywhere podcasts are available. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.